Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, friends. Welcome to an unexpected podcast. I'm Ez, and today we've got a special episode just for you. In just a few moments, you'll hear my best pal, Lane Smithers, taking you through a rough cut of our TV series adaptation called Concerning Hobbits, The Red Book of Westmarch, Season 1. We'll be adapting this audio into a future video that will showcase our vision for a TV series centered around the Shire and good old Hobbit folk. So with that, sit back and enjoy Concerning Hobbits. Hello, friends. My name is Lane for the last five or so years, me and my best buddy Ez have been venturing through all aspects of Middle-earth, be it literary, cinematic, or serial, as a part of our podcast, an unexpected podcast, Talkin' Tolkien. Spending so much time in Middle-earth really allows your creative juices to steep in the rich soup that is Tolkien's Legendarium. We've always joked that spending as much time as possible with the Hobbits in the Shire is literally the crowning achievement of Tolkien's works. Most people who've listened to us have caught on by now. It wasn't really a joke. We're serious. And that got us wondering... Could we come up with an adaptation that allowed us to do just that? The following video is our exploration of a TV adaptation of the characters and histories of Tolkien's Hobbits, and we hope it just tickles the toes on your big hairy feet. So grab your favorite armchair, maybe a pipe, put up said hairy feet, and enjoy what's to follow. Well, Eleanorelle, there's nothing for it. It's come time. The Red Book is yours now. Sam, Dad. No, now I won't hear it. You're ready. You've been ready for a long time now. What would you have me do, Da? You'll know. Keep it safe. Add to it. Pass it on. These aren't just tales filling the pages of this book. It's what really happened. The story of our people, of hobbit folk. Tales worth telling. Worth passing on. Worth remembering. Concerning creating an adaptation of Hobbits. Of why? Though my favorite literary and fictional character of all time is Aragorn, it was the hairy-footed, rosy-cheeked, pipe-weed-smoking little folk that made me fall in love with both Middle-earth and the Lord of the Rings. Rolling green hills, rich farmland, ancient trees all set against the backdrop of distant, hazy blue mountains, and the almost assured adventure that lay beyond all the while being beckoned into the warm, hospitable, firelit Hobbit abodes that dot the rolling, tussocky hillsides. This was it. Foreign, yet familiar, and comforting. Magical and fantastical, yet somehow attainable. Needless to say, I'm not the only one who feels this deep affinity for Hobbits, Hobbiton, or the Shire. Nor am I the only one who feels, somehow, that it is impossible to spend too much time among such excellent and admirable folk. Our time in the films, and I would even argue in the books, though some would contest, just feels fleeting and has always left me wanting more. I had always hoped that by now some mad filmmaking genius would have come along and created that piece of cinema or series that would allow us to really settle into the world of hobbits, the society, the gossip, the wonder, and of course, the humor. Sadly, or maybe not so sadly, that day has not come, which all leads me to what is coming in the following video, my idea for just that, an exploration of the world of the Shire and Hobbit folk. Not in an intro or book ended nicely with an accompanying outro, nor in some modern interpretation full of fashionable ideals of the time. No, 
This will be something that dives into the lore and legendarium of the Hobbit folk, and will strive to honor both the author's vision and arguably his most iconic creation. So if, like me, this is something you've always dreamed of, sit back, turn your pointy ear this way, put your hairy feet on a saddle, and try to imagine what can and hopefully could be. Where to begin? Ah, yes. When thinking about diving into an adaptation for cinema or series that explores the Shire and Hobbits, it is tempting to think that it will be just as simple as the lives that our hairy-footed friends enjoy. However, after just a little digging, the history and mythology of Hobbits shows itself to be sprawling, epic, surprisingly interconnected to Arda at large, and yet with a pleasing amount of white spaces on the map. Places that we can go that we have not yet discovered. Needless to say, feeling a bit like the table bussing dwarves is completely normal. How then to find a starting point? Where to begin? What, or who rather, is the key to really exploring this loved group of people, beloved place, and their age in the world of Tolkien? With the Hobbit, it is Bilbo. The Lord of the Rings? Frodo. I believe the key to fully exploring Hobbits and the history of the Shire in full, without the limits of time, and the freedom to jump from age to age, while still connecting all the aforementioned, is through the eyes of one character. One Hobbit. One Hobbit to rule them all? <laughs> Did I just make this character the new ring? No, don't go there. Focus, see it through lane. The Shire, Hobbits, the accompanying history and mythology can all be fully explored, fully explored, not through Bilbo or Frodo or even the old Toque, but the firstborn, fairborn of our beloved gardening ring bearer, Sam. The one Hobbit we need, the one who will be the linchpin, the fulcrum, the key to this story and the freedom to move and explore throughout all the others is Eleanor, daughter of Sam Gamgee, foremother of the Wardens of the Red Book. Yes, that's right. We're going to wander the marvels of Eridor's favorite people and place through the eyes of the first daughter of the Fourth Age. Here's why I feel she's the perfect choice and the only one through whom we can really experience it all. Of Eleanor. You were born at the end of a great age, Eleanor L.A. Sam Gamgee. Eleanor L.A. has always been a character of high interest among Tolkien fans. For starters, she's the firstborn of possibly the most loved couple in Middle-earth, trailing maybe only Arwen and Aragorn, and a character full of inexplicable wonder and noted elven beauty. Tolkien spends a decent amount of time detailing aspects of her life, and all of them are intriguing. She has a fascinating tie between the stories we have loved in the Third Age, as well as the world as a whole before the destruction of the Ring, and she also acts as a bit of a bridge into the world remade, the beginnings of the New Age, the Fourth Age, the Days of Peace. Let's lay out a bit of her story, what we know and what we don't, and then explore how she will be the one to lead us on adventures that I've laid out in three full seasons of a TV show. Eleanor was born on March 25th, 3021, being the firstborn child of Samwise Gamgee and his beloved Rosie Cotton. March 25th may be a date you remember. It's a date significant in both the real world as well as Middle Earth and even my personal world. My second-born daughter, Charlotte, shares a birthday with Eleanor. On March 25th in Middle-earth, Frodo and Sam, with the help of Gollum, destroy Sauron's one ruling ring in the fires of Aradruin. Sauron is defeated, and Barad-dûr, his dark tower, falls forever. So, pretty big deal. Essentially, the evil we've been fearing for thousands of years, and the destruction and victory that has eluded the forces of good, is finally obtained and secured on this date. Right off the bat, we have a connection between Eleanor and the climax of the greatest tale of the Third Age. Eleanor's birthday, March 25th, 3021, was also the very first day of the Fourth Age in Gondor. It is conceivable that she could be and probably is the first child of the Fourth Age, at least in the Shire. Here we have another instance of her being the tie to the past, as well as the bridge to the future, the age to come. 
Eleanor was quickly called the Fair, also Fairbairn or Fairborn, because of her beauty. Even as a child, people often remarked that she looked more akin to an elf maid than a hobbit. One would imagine her to be fairer of face, piercing eyes, and perhaps eventually growing even a little tall for a hobbit. Perhaps Eleanor's most stunning physical feature was her golden hair, which at the time of her birth was almost non-existent amongst hobbits, children, or adults. So not only was she fair, but rare indeed. This connection to the elves, which expands our view and relevance to not only other important races in Middle-earth, but also specific important characters and storylines, runs even deeper than you know. Not really. I mean, many of you know what I am about to tell you. I just couldn't resist using a Gandalf quote, especially with the factoid just on the horizon. Perhaps factoid is too light a term for such an important connection. When deciding on a name for his firstborn, Sam was torn between tradition and inspiration. It is a regular custom amongst hobbits to name daughters after flowers. Rosie, Pansy, Lily, and Sam, being a good and respectable hobbit at his core, wanted to honor that tradition. However, he, along with everyone else, was struck by Eleanor's uncanny elvish features and beauty, even as a baby. You could also say that a part of the Lady of Light, Galadriel herself, and the fair realm of Lothlorien never really left Sam. It was an encounter and experience that stayed with him for the rest of his life. It was Sam, after all, who longed to see the elves, and couldn't even resist sleep when he finally did, eavesdropping on Gildor and Mr. Frodo in the books, The Fellowship of the Ring. Let's also not forget that it is the soil and seeds from the Lady Galadriel that was paramount in the healing and restoration of the Shire itself, after the scouring committed by Sharky. You could argue there would not even be a Shire in the Fourth Age were it not for Sam's interaction with Galadriel in Lothlorien, or at least not a redemption of the same magnitude. It was often marveled at how quickly and robustly the Shire recovered, arguably due in some part to the power of the elves. As expected, Sam went to Frodo with this dilemma. Eleanor was the only child of Sam's that Frodo knew before leaving for Valinor, and it was he who made the suggestion for Sam's firstborn to be named Eleanor. In fact, her name Eleanor is a reference to the Sunstar, a little golden flower blooming in the land of Lothlorien, which perfectly satisfied Sam's desire to honor both the elven and the floral. An interesting aside on the Eleanor flower is that it was one of the flowers brought from Tolaresea to Numenor in the Second Age by the elves. Its description lends further relevance and reference to Lady Galadriel. The Eleanor flower was like a pimpernel, perhaps a little enlarged, growing sun-golden flowers and star-silver ones on the same plant, and sometimes the two combined. The fact that some flowers looked more like the sun and others more like stars, or you could even say the moon, one can't help but think of Lorlin and Telperion, the two trees of Valinor that held the light like that of the sun and the moon before their creation in Arda. On a simpler note, her name is also significant when considering her father is indeed, well, a gardener, and a mighty good one at that. Eleanor's very name evokes the ancient and foundational histories of the elves, and ties her to storylines that reach all the way back to the world of the firstborn, before even the sun and the moon were hung in place, firstborn to fairborn. The greatness of Eleanor's life isn't captured merely by her beauty and the significance of her name. She is the daughter, the firstborn child, of a ringbearer and the constant companion of the ringbearer. She is the forebear of Samwise the Brave, an heiress to courage and goodness and strength. While we don't know all the details of her life, there are some mile markers that are given to us by Tolkien. She gets to see much of Middle-earth and would someday be a big part of an expansion of the Shire itself. At the age of 15, she was named a maid of honor to Queen Arwen Evenstar. And six years later, at 21 years old, she rode to Gondor to live abroad with her parents for a year. 
It doesn't take much prodding to imagine how magical and impactful this time would have been for Eleanor. And while Tolkien doesn't specify, which in our mind is genius, you can quickly dream of all that she would have experienced. The wonders of Minas Tirith restored and renewed. Getting to know King Elisar and hear stories of his days as Strider, told by both he and her father. Meeting Queen Arwen, learning of who her grandmother is, Galadriel, as well as meeting their son, Eldarion. Meeting Faramir and seeing him and her father reunited, the list goes on and on. Traveling to Osgiliath, climbing into Mundaluin, perhaps even venturing to what was once the Black Land of Mordor, and catching a glimpse of the Sea to the South, down by Pelagir into the Glittering Sea. I wonder, would it call to her in any way? Would she feel stirrings looking into the wonders of the sea? She would spend the rest of her tweens in the Shire, undoubtedly working with her family, maybe even developing in the familial trade of gardening. In our adaptation, she will gain renown as the finest florist in the four farthings of the Shire, and try saying that ten times fast. Perhaps counted as the greatest in all of Eriador, but she would need to start somewhere, and we would see that. In addition to developing these skills and cultivating beauty, it can be assumed she would spend time with her many siblings and parents, involving herself in the general tenets of Hobbiton and Shire culture. Her Samdad is, after all, the mayor of Hobbiton. So she would be somewhat of a Hobbit royal, a far cry from her father's upbringing as a member of the general working class. Eight years after her return from Gondor at the age of 30, so not quite the coming of age 33, but close, she marries Fastred of Greenholm. We know little of Eleanor, we know even less of Fastred. By all accounts, Fastred is a good hobbit who would gain a station in a short time and receive an appointment by Thane Peregrine Took. I want to take a quick second to say that for our story, we will focus on establishing the relationship of Eleanor and Fastred as a loving one, a strong partnership of equals. While it would be an option to let Fastred fall to the background in an attempt to lift Eleanor up even more, two pieces of evidence would lead us to believe that he must have been worthy of renown and serve only as a complement to Eleanor and her greatness. One point, however their match is chosen, it receives the blessing of Eleanor, Sam, and all the other characters we trust so much. The other point, Sam thinks highly enough of Fastred to recommend him in a leadership position in the West March at Undertowers. With all we know of Sam, would we not only trust his judgment but also hold him above nepotism? I think so. In fact, Sam has always struck me as the type of character who would err in the opposite, to show fairness and sound judgment above connection. This tells us that Fastred must have been a solid hobbit indeed to garner such a recommendation from our beloved Sam. I think, in recent memory and experiences, relationships that we see on screen always diminish one partner in order to elevate the other, whether male or female. It works in certain universes and seems to be jarring in others. And while a harmonious couple may seem boring to many, but it's a type that is kind of underrepresented. So in this adaptation and treatment, you will see a loving, reciprocal marriage that isn't the focus of the story, but certainly isn't a distraction either. Moving on. Eleanor and Fastred's journey doesn't end there. They have two children together, Elfstan and Furiel, and breaking with Shire traditions, both are elven names, like their mother. Elfstan, a variation of Elfstone and undoubtedly named after King Elisar, and Furiel, which is Quenya for mortal woman. Elfstan being born in 1454, three years after his parents' marriage, and at his mother's coming of age, 33. The greatness and significance of Eleanor and her family only continues to increase as her life blossoms, and it's for this next appointment, honor, and task which our series will derive its name. In the year 1455, as detailed before, Thane Peregrine Took, with Mayor Gamgee's endorsement, gave to Faster the title Warden of the West March. The West March itself was a stretch of land from the ancient western border of the Shire, the White Downs, westward to the Tower Hills, effectively bridging the Shire and the ancient port area of Mithlond, the Grey Havens of the Elves. 
1452, King Alisar himself gifted this expansion to the Shire, officially bringing it into the borders of the Little Folk. This, in and of itself, was a purposeful and symbolic gesture, a region that belonged to the firstborn, being linked to the realm of the folk left off the lists. The greatest and the least of these, both who had significant roles in bringing an end to darkness time and time again throughout the history of Arda and Middle-earth, and two races so important to the life of King Elisar, Aragorn, Elfstone, Strider. This special land is where Eleanor and her family would reside and rule. They moved to Undertowers in 1455, where Elfstan and Furiel would be raised. The full significance of the West March wouldn't be realized for a few more decades. In 1482, after the death of Eleanor's mother, Rosie, Sam Dad would have his final interaction with his beloved Eleanorella. On his way to the Grey Havens to board a ship to Valinor, Sam would pass the Red Book on to Eleanor. This book, which had been passed from Bilbo, to Frodo, to Sam, and contains so much of the journey of hobbits as well as detailing the events we know as an unexpected journey and the Lord of the Rings, would now rest with Eleanor and her descendants, hereto known as the Keepers of the Red Book, forever. I hope it's clear to see now why a cinematic or serial adaptation of the histories of the Shire and Hobbit folk can center around none other than Eleanor, the very Hobbit who was entrusted with the literal written history of the Shire and Hobbits. Who's to say that if she and her descendants hadn't guarded it, copied it, treasured it, that Tolkien may not have ever received it to translate for us, right? That's how it happened, right? She is literally our key to explore any aspect of the histories of Shire folk we want. How exciting is that? She is the link to the past, the bridge to the future, fair and rare, and it is an honor to attempt to adapt a story so important centered around her. It is worth noting quickly that this outline of Eleanor's life is what Tolkien detailed and laid out for us in portions of The Return of the King, the appendices, and in an unpublished epilogue. While wanting to stay as true to his writings as possible, as we lay out the framework for this TV adaptation, we will be making some adjustments and changes, hence our usage of the term adaptation. Changes we do make were carefully thought over and will be explained as we adventure into the details of the framework of the show, and we hope they are seen as not necessary, but respectable deviations. Of three parts, the power of three. Now that we have outlined the life of Eleanor Gardner, our main character, it's important to take a moment to explain our approach to developing this adaptation for specifically a television series. Though, you know, I mean, we can't be choosy. We've not ruled out its potential for a cinematic representation as well. When thinking of ways to optimize and maximize one's experience in the Shire, increasing duration was foremost in our minds. We want to spend as much time as possible to be able to breathe the air of Bywater, so to say, with this adaptation. Because of this, and with the nature of television series' potential and production value over the past 20 years, a series seems the best way to obtain both optimal time as well as optimal exposure to content. One reason we took the time to lay out Eleanor's life occurrences, full of all the connections related to groups of people and histories of Middle-earth, was to build the expectation of experiencing the Shire, not just in one age or even small period of time, but throughout its entire history. This adaptation will by no means be comprehensive, but it will absolutely be compelling, dynamic, and maybe even more than one would assume could be included in a show about the Shire. Maximizing time spent and content explored, that's the mission. However, rooting our story in the intimate, meaning having a single main character, must, of course, come first. We have all experienced adaptations that try to take on too much of the grandiose and big stuff that audiences lose the personal, human details that draw us into the stories in the first place. Our adaptation is an attempt to include both and err on the side of the latter. 
We are also excited to include exploration of the Shire in the Fourth Age. We'll see brand new locations, Mickle Delving, Brandy Hall, the Great Smeals, the High Hay, all sorts of locations within the Shire that we've previously only been able to imagine or experience through the eyes of the talented Tolkien artists out there. In a deliberate attempt to appeal to the familiar while building something new, we have developed this adaptation in a trilogy of sorts. Maybe you could say we're using that term loosely, but one thing the greats have taught us through the ages, three acts just work. With that in mind, and remembering that it was a film trilogy adaptation with which so many of us fell in love, our serial adaptation will be three seasons. Full stop. Likewise, we'll have a narrative trilogy of sorts within each season. The power of three, always. Three hunters, three companions, three stories. We will not veer from the tried and true. When all is said and done at the end of this adapted series, audiences will get to experience three seasons containing six tales from the Red Book, three season arcs, and one series arc. We hope that an optimized adventure of the Shire is what we would all receive in return. Of Season 1, also of Seasonal Structure. Before we get into Season 1 in full, we wanted to outline the structure of each season. We will undoubtedly revisit this throughout the video, but thought it important to have in mind before the adventure begins. Each season will consist of seven episodes. This is a bit odd, as most series of TV shows made at a cinematic level quality these days contain either six or eight episodes. Even numbers tend to be the tendency, or norm rather. However, seven episodes fits our structure a little better. It allows us to include three different timelines and also gives us a middle episode, which might seem undesirable. However, seven episodes fits our structure a little bit better, allows us to include three different timelines and also gives us a middle episode, which might seem undesirable, but for our adaptation, it's pretty ideal. Each season will begin with and center on Eleanor in episode one. The end of episode one and each season will introduce, tease, and lead into the tale we will spend exploring in the next two episodes, episodes two and three. These episodes could also include Eleanor in ways that are natural without detracting from the tale, but this is a choice that would be left with scriptwriters, whoever those geniuses might be. It might be appropriate to explain here the use of the term tale. When we say tale, we are referring to a storyline or account from the history of Hobbits and the Shire, and we will expand on those more as we come to them. Episode 4 will serve as a middle episode and a standalone Eleanor episode. This will serve to move her seasonal arc along, and as we've planned, will fit in thematically to the two tales we explore in each season. Episodes 5 and 6 will be another and different tale from the history of the Shire and Hobbits, and will open immediately in that tale. Episode 7 will be the finale episode in each season, and will bring us back to Eleanor's storyline, tying the season together, and teasing the season to come. In terms of episode length, we have no firm and fast rule, but no less than 60 minutes would be great, and no longer than 90 would be awesome. It may even be interesting to experience episodes of different lengths, perhaps 1, 4, and 7 being 60 minutes long, and 2, 3, 5, and 6 being 90 minutes each, especially if they can incorporate elements of Eleanor's storyline along the way and woven together. Again, something we would leave to the task scriptwriters' greater minds than ours. Now then, let's move into Season 1. Finally. Season one will begin with a familiar sound, the calling of galls and the gentle rolling of tide. If we could insert the smell of salt water, we would, but we'll rely on sense memories to fill in that gap. Our opening scene, you've already heard at the beginning of this video. We will begin this journey by witnessing the passing of the Red Book from Sam Dad to Eleanorella. This poignant and emotional scene will set a tone of depth and substance, as well as be a natural beginning point for a story about just that, the Red Book, full of all of its tales and history. What this scene also does is tie this series to the familiar and beloved. 
If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy, it goes without saying that the scene at the Grey Havens is one that fans hate love. It is filled with an absolute cocktail of emotions and can be difficult yet enjoyable to watch. Laughing, crying, drooling, running nose, all of it. All that said, it is powerful. What we hope to convey is that connection to nostalgia and a projection of that same power and weight. It also presents a nice parallel. Our journeys in the trilogy of films ended with Sam's return from Mithlond. Our adventures in this series will begin with his daughter's return from that same location and same type of experience. In many ways, we believe it will feel like a seamless transition from the trilogy we love to a show that we hope everyone loves. Episode 1 will focus on Eleanor and her coming to grips with not only many endings, but so many beginnings for her and her family. After the opening scene, we will see her return to Hobbiton, bearing the Red Book, the very history of her country and people. We will quickly see that not only is Eleanor carrying the weight of her people's history, but also the oncoming of motherhood, as it's revealed that she is pregnant with, who will be, Elfstan. The goal of this episode will be to establish Eleanor as our main character, and while it may not be the flashiest of episodes, we aim for it to be one full of emotional weight, depth, and the interpersonal small moments that we as fans love so much. To quote our most beloved wizard, I have found that it is the small things, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay, simple acts of kindness and love. It is also important to make the distinction that while we have developed the dialogue and finer points of a few scenes contained in these seasons, our aim is not and was never to take on the role of scriptwriters. Our only goal is to provide a framework for what we would enjoy to see on screen. It's a dream, really. Furthermore, any lack of finer details and specifics in the way of how scenes will be executed are intentionally not mapped out here and better left to those who will be able to do so with much greater power than us. Back to our story. Eleanor returns to Hobbiton and to her husband, Fastred, with a red book. Actually, I've just now realized in saying this that Fastred has the root red in his name. He's destined? <laughs> Brilliant. We would naturally see some scenes of Eleanor sitting and having tea with her husband who asks questions about her journey, how Sam Dad seemed upon his departure and how she was feeling. At the start of our story, she will be very far along in her pregnancy. Within this conversation, Fastred will ask Eleanor if she's ready for the move. Eleanor will seem almost surprised by this question, as she will feel somewhat distracted and distant. After all, she is processing the recent loss of her mother, the final voyage of her father, all while preparing to welcome their first child into the world, on top of that being gifted the physical written history of her entire race. That's a few plates in the air, and make no mistake. Move? Move. Ah, oh, yes. Eleanor and Fastred will be moving into Bag End, as it was left to her by her father, Sam. It may be appropriate to address a few creative divergences we've decided to make at this point, because, as with any adaptation, we've racked up some already. <laughs> For starters, at the time of Sam's departure to Valinor, Eleanor and Fastred were already living in and ruling the Westmarch. And had been for a while, actually, like almost 30 years. Likewise, Eleanor was not pregnant with her first child at the time. In fact, Sam, and Rosie for that matter, would have gotten to know both of Eleanor's children very well, as Elfstan was 28 in the year that Eleanor saw Sam dad off at Tower Hills. Another divergence is just that. Eleanor said farewell and was given the Red Book not at Mithlon, but at Tower Hills, probably at their home in Undertowers, before Sam continued on to the Grey Havens. And another point, as far as Tolkien states, Eleanor and Fastred never live at Bag End. Eleanor would have as a child, but never as an adult. So why make the changes? 
Well, as the rest of the season unfolds, hopefully it will be clear, beyond you just having to take our word for it now, that these adjustments help in facilitating a more intertwined storytelling in terms of adaptation for a series. The way Tolkien did it was perfect. There is no contesting that from us. Our way is definitely worse. However, visual media is a much different beast from literature. It goes without saying that there is so much more that you can accomplish in a book than, say, a movie, TV show, or even audio drama adaptation for that matter. It is our hope that these slight adaptations and chronological errors, if you will, will serve in creating a free-flowing story that will organically allow us to experience so much of the stories Tolkien created for the little folk. So by being different, it will allow us to access more Some will not like this at first and maybe forever, but there are changes we feel that honor his work and also allow us to create something as well. Onward. Eleanor returns, red book in tow, baby on the way, to Hobbiton and her husband Fastred. After being asked about the move into Bag End, we will learn that, in true Hobbity fashion, there is some problem with the paperwork that transfers the ownership of Bag End from Sam to Eleanor, which is of course ridiculous. But it will serve our plot in a couple of ways. How Eleanor and Faster discover this can be done in a couple different ways, but perhaps it's best done through the Bywater Post, either a letter that's on the table having just arrived that day or a notice they receive later on early in the episode. This could also be done as we see them preparing for the move. Wouldn't it kind of be fun to see hobbits packing for a move? Would they, like, put on their favorite phonograph or stream Netflix or something? Perhaps it might be best achieved as we see Eleanor preparing flower arrangements or tending her flower fields, as we learn she has naturally become the most highly sought-after florist in the Four Farthings. Again, try saying that ten times fast. And perhaps all of Eriador. Regardless, this notice will alert her that her presence is required to validate the transfer of Bag End from Sam to her. This will require her to go to Mickle Delving, the capital of the Shire. Dude, another distant journey for a very pregnant woman? What's wrong with you? If you'll excuse the pun, drama, baby. Drama. And being the lucky husband to my wife, who bore four children, all the while raising the ones who came after, working as a teacher, and refusing to stop adventuring, I am one man who understands that there is no strength on earth like that of a mother. And that's what we aim to show. So yes, to Mickle Delving we go and Fastred will be going with her. This will allow us to explore a couple of elements as well, and therefore is full of purpose. Firstly, we will get to see Eleanor and Fastred's love in action. No intimacy coordinator needed. (laughs) Sorry, that's a rings of power joke that I just can't seem to let go. What better way to learn of their love for one another than to see it in action? I can also imagine scenes around a campfire along the way as they settle in for the night and are brought some memory of their love story that we get to experience through their dialogue and reminiscence. I can remember how reflective a time it was before my wife and I had our first child, Winnie. For most, it is a time consumed with the feeling of love and the fact that an embodiment of that love is about to enter the world and change your lives forever. Okay, it's mostly back pain, swelling, and cravings, but all those romantic memories do pop up in between. I must admit that this plot point does have a personal connection to my life as well, as my wife and I took a road trip from Ohio to California and back again when my wife was pretty far along pregnant with our first child. And although it wasn't always the most comfortable time for her, it was a trip we both look back on with great fondness and gladness that we took. This trip, though, made out of necessity, will be carried out with that same spirit by Eleanor and Fastred. They will make the best of it, akin to the way that Eleanor's father, Sam Dad, always did. The other point this journey will serve, 65 miles one way, is to enable Eleanor to reflect on another journey she took as a child, when she spent a year in Gondor with her mom and dad. Rosie and Sam. 
Before we get into exactly what we could see through these flashbacks, it is interesting to explore exactly how we will experience Eleanor's inner narrative. The beautiful tool we have access to through the precedent of the films is voiceover, inner monologue, and narration, thanks to Galadriel, Bilbo, Gandalf, and Frodo. It would be interesting to imagine how this could be used with Eleanor, especially when applied to asides and flashbacks. It would be imperative, we believe, to not rely on just one or the other. We wouldn't always need to hear narration from Eleanor, a la Outlander, nor never hear it, a la Blade Runner. We should have times where we do and times where we don't, further following the film's example. It is even further relevant, especially when considering that Eleanor is the first keeper of the Red Book, was given it by Sam with the implication of guarding, sharing, and making copies of it, and in theory, continuing to add to it. It may even be feasible that what we are experiencing in her storyline is being told to us by her at the series' conclusion, her own personal contribution to the Red Book, if you will. It is also important to address here that Eleanor has, in fact, brought the Red Book with her on this journey. Aside from the Red Book being a device that will naturally help us experience the various tales that we will in this and the two subsequent seasons, we believe it will also be in her character to feel the responsibility to really study and familiarize herself with the contents of the Red Book, to study the history of her people, and it wouldn't be a chore for her either. Our idea is that, among many other wonderful traits she would have received from and been fostered by her parents, historical curiosity would have been one of them. Now, on to what we could learn and experience from her recalling her Gondorian gap year. We also want to suggest that these stories could be shown all in one chunk, or in smaller segments. Perhaps she's recounting some of these memories to Fastrid. Perhaps the act of another journey, mini-voyage, sparks some of these recollections. Organic road trip stuff. However it unfolds, we'll get to experience some awesome moments. Personally, seeing a compilation of travel-slash-road scenes between Eleanor and Fastred, paralleled by young Eleanor and her Sam dad and mother Rosie on their trip to Gondor and Minas Tirith, would be an absolute visual spectacle. Just imagine it. Eleanor and Fastred laughing and enjoying their trip on ponyback, maybe Fastred leading their ponies so they can move at a slower pace, intercut with Rosie, Eleanor, and Sam. Voyaging south, Sam getting to experience the voyage this time in the role of leisure and not toil, recalling all the aspects of the Fellowship's quest, telling stories he had perhaps forgotten himself, retreading a road he probably never thought he'd take again. When we get to Minas Tirith, I would imagine the Gamgees would be greeted with no shortage of fanfare. After all, a ring bearer who shall bow to no man is returning to the White City. This, of course, would be unexpected to Sam, and we would definitely see him have moments of embarrassment and blush at the honor they would bestow. Rosie would beam with pride, and Eleanor, maybe for the first time, would see firsthand just how big of a deal her dad is. Never before would she have seen him so lauded and celebrated, and the legends of her father's life would come into clear focus and reality. I can visualize a parade of sorts, stretching the seven levels of Minas Tirith, leading them to the Citadel and the Hall of the King. There, they would be greeted by King Elisar and Queen Arwen Evenstar. This would be a special reunion, as it could be assumed years have passed since Sam had seen Strider, and we would see a joyous embrace indeed. This would also presumably be the first time that Arwen and Eleanor meet. Remember that Eleanor had just a year prior been named a maid of honor for Queen Arwen, and I would imagine the young firstborn of Sam being captivated by the elven queen. No doubt, special accommodations would be made for the steward of Gondor, Faramir, to be there for the special welcoming as well. And what a cool moment it would be to see he and Sam see each other once again. So, what could we experience in the sequence? Feasting and, and, and smoking! All references aside, 
Definitely. It would be an amazing thing to see the top layer of Minas Tirith fully restored and glorified, white tree tall and blooming, hosting a knockdown, drag out, absolute celebratory bash, an even more powerful visual given our predominant reference and remembrance. Minas Tirith was crestfallen, dark, empty, and fallen, even besieged as we witnessed the assault of Mordor in Return of the King. Imagine in place of the party tree of Hobbiton, the white tree of Gondor, and a party there, joyous. All of the grief and despair and hopelessness replaced with elation, love, and peace. It's a different place than we left it. We do get a glimpse of this during Return of the King's coronation scene, but this would be an even bigger, more light-hearted, removed celebration. We wouldn't need to linger on these scenes too long. A montage of the three Gamgees being led around Gondor to see its return to splendor and glory. Osgiliath, Minas Ethel, visiting the sea would definitely suffice. I believe the only scene we need for our purposes in Eleanor's arc is between her and Queen Arwen. This would ideally take place on the seventh level lawn as the sun sets in the west and casts a golden light all around, an aura to match the beauty of Eleanor Fairbairn. Being a maid of honor to Queen Arwen would come as an official title of sorts, and also the giving of some symbol or token. The conversation in this scene could focus on love, life, and the mortality we all face. That beauty is only such because it isn't eternal. That it does wither and die, just like the Eleanor flower. But it is the golden hour the moments of life that should be celebrated, for we know not when they will be taken, when they will pass. Arwen would produce a special pin, pendant, or jewel. In my mind, it's a jewel, which can be attached to and worn on a necklace. This jewel would carry the essence, the golden light, of the Eleanor flower itself, and would evoke its beauty. While this may feel a little too derivative of the Evenstar, the passing of the token of Arwen's love to Aragorn, which in the stories is actually gifted to Frodo as a sign of his right passage to Valinor, essentially Arwen giving her ticket to Frodo, that we are so accustomed to from the films, we think it will work and is a somewhat satisfying reference without being lifted directly or copied and pasted. It's believable and should create a lovely moment, as well as a token that she can carry with her, further building her elven-ish, or rather elven-like legend. With this, we transition back to Eleanor, clearly seeing this gifted jewel upon her neck, adorning a tight and delicate golden chain. At this transition, we see that Eleanor and Fastred have arrived at the capital of the whole Shire, Mickledelvin. Let's take a couple minutes to talk about Mickledelving, because it's worth learning about and is a pretty remarkable place, and one we've never seen in cinema before. Like many fans of Tolkien, it was always kind of my impression and understanding that in terms of the Shire, Hobbiton was it. Meaning it didn't get any bigger, better, or more important. From an emotive position, I still believe that, but many fans, especially casual fans or lovers of the movies alone, would be surprised to learn that Hobbiton, while it's very important, is mostly just well known for having Bag End. The Green Dragon is also a very important part, but technically it's in Bywater, not Hobbiton. Places like Brandy Hall and the Smeals are, subjectively, even more impressive in terms of Shire locales. And then there's Mickledelving, the capital city of the Shire. Okay, only the capital city unofficially, but still, it's definitely a town worthy of a little embellishment. Its name literally means large excavation, much and digging, if you will, and it is that. Built into the side of an exposed escarpment of white rock, it is comprised of many traditional hobbit homes dug into the earth, as well as many freestanding buildings made of wood, stone, and brick. Perhaps its most important institution is its town hall, hilariously named Town Hole. 
In fact, Town Hall is our destination alongside Eleanor and Fastred as they lead us through this altogether wonderful chief town of the Shire. For Mickle Delving, imagine Minas Tirith but done Hobbit style. The person they seek to make the transfer of Bag End's deed official, Hob Whitfoot, the mayor of Mickle Delving. It's important to take a moment here to acknowledge that in our planning and adapting Tolkien's works for the series, we can only imagine it, rather we prefer imagining it, being filmed in New Zealand. Hobbiton would have to be filmed in Matamata, where the films were shot. Likewise, in visualizing these new locations, we have taken to virtually scouting areas in New Zealand that would fit the bill, so to speak. Let's just say this has been achieved with no greater catharsis than with Mickle Delving. For our purposes, we will cast the capital city in the clay cliffs of Omorama, found in the southern half of the South Island. One only needs to see images here in this video to be blown away and realize that you could easily see these cliffs filled with hobbit holes with very little effort. The surrounding area works beautifully as well. Mountains in the near distance serve perfectly as the white downs, and low-lying flowering bushes and small trees fit the topography so well, it almost seems like this location is made for Mickle Delving. Asides aside, let's get into the action of Mickle Delving, and how this capital city will facilitate our first foray into the Tales of the Red Book. We imagine Mickle Delving being a bustling, vibrant location. In truth, I would love to see it realized in a way that would make us really feel that Hobbiton and Bywater are just sleepy small towns in contrast. Coming into the city, we'll see vendors and commerce happening in markets sprawling out from the skirts of the White Cliffs. We'll see sprawling epic shots of Mickle Delving from the air as well as sweeping mid-shots that would keep us engaged and wondering, which are businesses? Which are homes? How many portholes are in that cliffside? And I've never seen so many hobbits in all my life. We really want Mickle Delving to convey a location of import, of significance, and truly memorable. Just as the first experience of Bag End, along for the ride with Gandalf and Frodo, was truly remarkable and left an impression of the very highest. Without getting too lost in all these details, for our purposes, this is a sequence where filmmakers would be able to fully flex their creative genius at unfurling a new and thriving location for us as the audience. One thing we would love to see is a bit more marveling from Fastrid. Maybe this is one of the first times he's actually made it to Mickle Delving, and less wonder from Eleanor. We have just established how far and wide she's traveled. She is a hobbit who's no stranger to the grandeur of Middle-earth. She and we are on a mission to resolve the clerical error from the deed to Bag End. Surely, just a misunderstanding in Eleanor's mind. We see our two main characters head for Town Hole, a significant entryway built into the side of the white cliffs of the city. Also, just thinking about the parallels to Minas Tirith we've built in these episodes, the White City, the White Cliffs, both capital cities, places of history and import, not too bad. Bag End being the main attraction, if you will, to Hobbiton, the details of its ownership is relatively important amongst the Shire folk, and not wanting for speculation and rumor, of course. With this matter being of a serious nature, Eleanor and Fastred are directed to meet with the mayor of Mickle Delving himself, Hob Whitfoot, grandson of the famous former mayor, Will Whitfoot, or Old Flower Dumpling, as he was known, after an accident at Town Hall left him covered in white powder, having fallen through an upper story floor, as the story goes, mind you, due in no small part to his portly nature. He was a hobbit of remarkable size. Eleanor and Fastred are granted, or rather given an audience, or rather an appointment with Mayor Hob, and quickly learn that the issue with the deed to Bag End may not be as simple as they first suspected. Through a somewhat tense scene that crescendos in uncomfortability, we learn that Hob indeed considers this a bit of a personal issue. You see, his grandfather was a mayor of great renown, a hobbit of great stature, <laughs> forgive the double meaning. He was a legend of sorts in the Shire. It became his son Billy's, Hob's father, dream to one day become mayor of Mickle Delving as well, to live up to and even surpass the reputation and legacy of his father. 
However, when it came time for him to run, the Shire found itself in the throes of rebuilding from the scouring of the Shire. Upon their return from the quest of the Fellowship, our four beloved hobbits took up leadership roles within the Shire, one of them being mayor of the Shire. After being freed at the end of the Battle of Bywater, Will was no longer fit for the position, so the role of deputy mayor passed to Frodo, who served in the position until the Free Fair on Mid-Year's Day, where Will was restored in the year 1420. Will would go on to serve seven more years before resigning his duties. Now was his son Billy's chance, and many thought he could do the job as good as any, being akin to his father in both size and likability, both traits traditionally valued in leadership roles by hobbits. However, the renown of the four hobbits, three remaining in the Shire after Frodo's departure, had only grown by that time, with Pippin and Merry eventually taking up leadership roles in Tuckborough and Buckland respectively, but it was Samwise who would be the first, becoming Will Woodfoot's successor in 1427. Here was the disdain for Samwise Gamgee and all his descendants born in the heart of Billy, a vitriol he would pass down to all his children. He would sow the seeds of hatred and mistrust for anyone hailing from the line of Mayor Samwise. These details would also seem to fit at Eleanor's greater familiarity with the marvel of Mickle Delving. Though Sam never lived there during his service as mayor, he would have been needed in the capital city regularly and undoubtedly would have brought his family, and most certainly his firstborn, with him frequently. Eleanor was no stranger to Mickle Delving, and in fact no stranger to Hob, whose father, Billy, would often find ways to impart slights and unpleasant interactions with not only Sam, but all the Gamgees. It's said that once... Upon staying in the mayoral suite, a rather large possum had been let into the quarters and wreaked havoc. Some even say that it wasn't in fact a possum, but young Hob, dressed in fur and a tail. Of course, most respectable Hobbits acknowledge this as no more than a rumor and fanciful tale-telling. It's after this tense meeting with Hob when Eleanor and Faster leave, we learn that, in fact, there is no issue with the deed and peaceful transfer of Bag End whatsoever. Sam Dad had made sure that all the legalities were dealt with completely, a lesson he had explicitly learned from both Mr. Bilbo and Mr. Frodo, who can forget the Sackville Bagginses. Furthermore, Mayor Hob Whitfoot not only had all the legitimate documentation required, he had intentionally interfered with the process upon learning of the plans for Sam Gamgee's passing from the Shire. It wasn't enough for Hob to become mayor. His father's spiteful influence had indeed bloomed in the actions of his son. Needless to say, both Fastred and Eleanor are disheartened by this interaction. On their way leaving Town Hall, Eleanor notices a painting hanging on the wall of a rather grim and determined-looking group of hobbits, dressed for battle. She can't quite remember her first impression of this painting, but knows she's seen it before, in childhood, during one of their visits to Mickle Delving. She was always struck by one of their faces, convinced it was her father. Sam, Dad, who's that in the painting with you? She remembered asking. Even now, she found the similarity uncanny. The walls of Town Hall are filled with paintings and signage from days gone by. In fact, Town Hall served as a museum of sorts. One could learn much of the history of hobbits, at least in a visual sense, from spending a few hours in that main hall. Determined to see this matter through, Fastred and Eleanor will spend the evening in Mickle Delving, perhaps with distant relations, willing and able to put them up for a night or two, or in one of the inns of Mickle Delving. Either way, they will have time to reflect and discuss on what to do next. Eleanor is far less dismayed than Fastred. She just knows this isn't right, and believes that Sam Dad must have provided some other way. We'll also learn in this conversation of the history of Billy and Hob, and the animosity they've always shown to Eleanor and her family. And furthermore, why this turn of events isn't exactly shocking to Eleanor. It will be fun to see Eleanor tell these memories, and also to see Fastred's disdain for Hob to grow from litigious irritation to personal disdain. No one treats my wife and her Sam Dad that way. 
That night, Eleanor will have a dream, or perhaps a memory come to her via dream. Gulls calling, the sun setting, her father turning to board a ship, halts and turns back. Now there's just one more thing, Eleanor Ellie. Oh, sticklebats, now it's gone and fled my mind. Oh, isn't that just like you, Samwise? Last minute for something to be said, and you can't recall what needs saying. Something about bag end? Oh, no matter. You'll figure it out, Ellie. You always do. You always know where to look. Where to look. Where to look. Where to look. Will ring in Eleanor's ears as she awakens with a start. Something about that phrase will guide her and serve as a riddle of sorts. Where does one look for anything? A book. Sam's firstborn daughter will pick up the red book and by candlelight search for some clue, anything that will help resolve this matter. After scanning the old text, flipping through page after page, we see a wax-sealed envelope stuck in the back cover, and the look on Eleanor's face will tell us all we need to know. We will cut away to the next morning and find Eleanor waking up fast and early. He is understandably confused, as she is already dressed and ready to return to Town Hall and conclude this matter with Mayor Hobb. What had she found out to help in this case? And furthermore, when did she find it out? Entering Town Hall, already bustling with the business of the day, the ancient painting will catch Eleanor's gaze again. This time, the eyes of the grim hobbit will seem to follow her, watch over her, preparing her, perhaps. We will find Hob Whitfoot in the middle of a healthy breakfast. Healthy breakfast. We're talking the king of all breakfasts, what we would consider most people's first and second breakfasts combined. It should also be noted that Hob also possessed the portly proportions and presence of his grandfather. Though greatly different in temperament, their physical appearance was uncannily similar. In fact, some of the eldest hobbits of Mickledelving would mistakenly call him Mayor Will without realizing their mistake. Eleanor enters the scene with a high elven confidence that she alone possesses in all the Shire. Hob will try to hide his annoyance, but won't be able to for too long. In my mind, Eleanor will quip something quick-wittedly along the lines of, thought you might like some reading material while you break your fast. We see from Hobb's stupefied expression that this is a move for which he had not accounted. Breaking the seal and opening the document, we see a heading that reads, Last Will and Testament of Sam Gamgee. The document is old, tattered, but fully preserved. It would be perfect to have Eleanor point out exactly the details that resolve the very issue they come to Mickledelving to address. If you scan down to assets, you'll see just there, and I quote, Bag End will be left to my firstborn, Eleanor Gardner, and all her heirs. Hobb will be in denial, insisting this document mustn't be legitimate. To this point, Eleanor will draw Hobb's attention to the signature on the final page and the official seals accompanying them. Among them, and as witness and notary, is the signature of none other than Hobb's grandfather, Will Whitfoot. Hob will be understandably enraged by this and will come a little unhinged. As Eleanor and Fastard leave, Hob, having lost control so much, falls through the floor into the main hall of Town Hole. Sulking and utterly embarrassed and covered in the white sediment from the lime rock, the hobbits on the very first floor are overcome with laughter and hilarity, with some of the elder hobbits even quipping to one another, Well, if it ain't no flower dumpling himself, come back to us from beyond. A fitting end for a character who had it out for our main and all her kin. Amidst all the commotion and hubbub of the first story spectacle as it would be known ever after, Eleanor looks to her left and is again drawn to the portrait of the warrior hobbits and specifically the hobbit so familiar in appearance to her Sam dad. It'll seem as though his expression is somewhat less grim, though that couldn't possibly be the case. But we may even start to wonder, is that a smirk and a twinkle at being audience to such a victory of the line of Gamgee? All the noise will fade into a hum and will slow down and focus on the eyes of the portrayed hobbit and that of Eleanor. 
This will lead us to the final scene of the episode, seeing Eleanor's eyes illuminated by firelight, and we will find her camped on the way home to Hobbiton. Fastred already fast asleep, the red book in her hands. She will be already skimming through to the very beginning. We end our first episode with Eleanor's voice narrating the very beginning of the red book. It all began with the three kin of the little folk, the Stewers, the Fallow Hides, and the Harfoots. Here follows the account of Marcho and Blanco and the coming into the West. Eleanor has begun in earnest her keeping of the red book, her commitment to preserving the history of hobbits, and her knowledge of her people in the world of Eriador and Middle-earth. And now we move on to other beginnings, and the origin of hobbits and their beginnings in the Shire. Of Fornost and the Battle-Hardened Hobbit Archers, Episodes 2 and 3. Episode 2 will see us catapulted, again I pun, into our very first tale from the Red Book, the story of the Shire tribute archers and the heroism of Ban Galpsy, their leader. At the front of this adaptation, it's important to point out again that there will be great creative expansion over the course of this tale. We haven't decided exactly how detailed we would like to be in our description of these tale episodes. It feels more fitting to present hypotheticals, possible storylines, and leave the details to scriptwriters and in turn remain more mysterious for the time being. After all, we are only adapting what we ourselves would love to see as an audience, so technically it's kind of in our best interest to not be too detailed. That being said, the majority of the facts from Tolkien's works will again be followed here, and any embellishments or tributes will be ones that are intended to show honor and respect. Episode 2 will begin with a prologue, for a couple of reasons, mainly. For starters, it's a great callback to the cinematic universe of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, both of which open with prologues as such. Another reason is it is an efficient yet respectful way to tell this part of the tale, as it contains lots of gaps and white spaces in the narrative in terms of what Tolkien developed. Our prologue will be voiced by a character we've already seen, but not yet met, until its conclusion, that is. The content of the prologue, the origin story of Hobbits. We were three, three were we. I believe the entire origin story, from their emergence in the east to their wandering west and south, to their eventual settling of the Shire by the brothers Marcho and Blanco, could all be done in eight to ten minutes. There's so many good bits and nuggets along the way, but balancing this with keeping it vague and mysterious would both match our intentions as well as the very secretive existence of the little folk. It would be tempting to really dig into this time period and flesh out some riveting and complex storylines and narratives, but my fear is that with the freedom of less Tolkien stuff and lore during this time, it would be even more left open to interpretation and wandering and not necessarily in a way that would satisfy most Tolkien fans. And also to say, some things are best left as a mystery. While our first tale isn't about the founding of the Shire, nor the origins of hobbits as a race, composed of three sects or breeds within Middle-earth, it is deeply tied to it. For as we see at the prologue's conclusion, our storyteller or narrator is none other than a hobbit named Ban Galpsy. We won't know this right away, nor his specific backstory, but we will recognize his eyes. Perhaps his opening shot will be of only that two deep pools of courage full of ancient light. These eyes belong to the portrait from which Eleanor could not pull herself, brought to life. As we pan out, we find our setting in an embattlement, a fortress, obviously having been under siege, though not currently. A lull in battle has allowed a group of hobbits to gather around a fire and share stories and tales. It's Ban who felt it appropriate to share the story of where they all come from, why they are here on this battlefield, and what it is they are fighting for, their home and the homes of those who gave them theirs. Okay, what? I know, I get it. Back up, build up, where are we, when are we, what's going on? Okay, 
The conclusion of this prologue will bring us to the time and place of the first tale. We are in the thick of the fall of Fornost, the sole remaining realm of the northern kingdom of Arnor, year of 1974 of the Third Age. Ban Galpsi is the leader of hobbit archers from the Shire, who were sent as tribute to aid in the forces of Eriador in their war with the dark forces of Angmar, led by none other than the Witch King. Yeah. We're getting it all in this first tale. And before we get too far into it, I'll spoil a little something for you. It's going to be tragic, especially the ending. But the aim of this first tale is twofold. To allow for a prologue showing the origin story of hobbits done well, and to show that hobbits had been around and involved in wars against evil more than we might realize. While at the time of our four beloved hobbits fighting in the War of the Ring, it had been quite some time since the little folk had been involved in such global affairs, we will see here it wasn't their people's first rodeo. It's with Ban's brigade of hobbit archers that hearts will lie. I know a brigade doesn't typically apply to archers, mostly infantry, but I need an alliteration until a more creative writer can craft a more clever title for our heroes. As they stand in the face of inevitable doom, as the kingdom of Fornost faces the unrelenting forces of the Witch King. The aim of Ban's Hobbit origin story is to inspire hope, at least amongst his fellow hobbits. For as we're about to see in full, the future, for them anyway, is very bleak. It would be lovely to pan to a few of their faces, lit by cold firelight, then lift into the air to show a fortress and city in shambles, wreckage, and reeling from unrelenting barrage. At this time, the Witch King is at his peak in Angmar, and his assault upon the northern kingdom of Arnor is almost complete. Fornost is the capital city of Arthedain, the only remaining kingdom of the original three, the other two being Cardalan and Rudar. It's worth a moment to explain that these two episodes, two and three of season one, will be full of Fran and Philippa and they fight moments and scenes. I won't pretend to possess the skill of writing and crafting battle sequences that audience would find compelling and exciting, but there are those, like Peter Jackson, who can take that simple phrase or direction and turn it into pure magic. As mentioned previously, Ban and his companions are fighting as a form of tribute. This is something that indeed did occur in the lore Tolkien created, and there were 500 hobbit archers at the Battle of Fornost. I like to think the general hobbit skill of lethal rock throwing during battle sequences in The Lord of the Rings would be a direct descendant from this form of range attack they once possessed. Tribute hobbit archers? Pretty wild, isn't it? Until developing the show adaptation, it's something we had never learned. But my lord, doesn't it just deepen the status of heroism in our already beloved hobbits? The land of the Shire was officially given to hobbits from Bree in the year 1601 of the Third Age, year one by Shire Reckoning, obviously, by King Argaleb II. It had originally been a region of fertile and well-tilled royal farmlands, cornlands, vineyards, and woods. Just before being given to hobbits as homeland, the Shire region had been mostly deserted as the power of Arthedain waned, and was used primarily as the hunting grounds of the King of Arnor. Soon, hobbits from as far away as Dunland and the deserted lands and former kingdoms of Cardolan and Rudar would join their kin in the Shire. In the early days of Shire Hobbits, they widely considered themselves subjects of the king, and found it only fitting and honorable to send tribute forces to aid in the defense of Arthedain against the might of Angmar. There it is, rooted in lore, a mighty nugget that will allow us to experience this amazing time in the history of Middle-earth and pull in some massive characters, mainly the Witch King, who will appear very differently than we are used to, and King Arvadui, the last king of Arnor. It's King Arvadui we'll meet first. It can be something as trivial as Ban reporting to the king about losses and strategy for the oncoming assault, but whatever the reason, we'll see our hobbit hero gaining an audience with the mighty but defeated king. 
It's important to talk a little bit about Arvadui, literally last king in Sindarin, before moving on with our story. There was a prophecy for Arvadui's life, spoken to his father Eraphant by Malbath the seer at Arvadui's birth. Arvadui you shall call him, for he will be the last in Arthodyne, though a choice will come to the Dunedain, and if they take the one that seems less hopeful, then your son will change his name and become king of a great realm. If not, then much sorrow, and many lives of men shall pass, until the Dunedain arise and are united again. Can you imagine this being your fate? Or at the very least, knowing that this was said and foreseen at your birth? The weight of this fate and a constant knowledge of the importance of his decision-making is something we will see physically in our scenes with him. He carries a heavy load, and each decision he has to make is haunted by this prophecy. Though we don't know tons about his life, Arvadui is a very important king, in a lot of ways. One being that he provides a repairing link between Gondor and Arnor, as he takes Firiel as his wife. Firiel is a name that we will come to know very well. Firiel is the daughter of King Ondaher of Gondor, who, along with his sons Ardamir and Faramir, are slain in a battle against the Wainriders. It's Arvadui who appeals to the Council of Gondor that he, being Firiel's husband, as well as a direct descendant of Isildur, should have rightful claim to the kingship of Gondor, as Ondaher and his heirs perished. In fact, according to old Numenorian law, Furiel should have become the first queen of Gondor. This choice of Arvadui seems pretty hopeful. He stands to fully reunite Arnor and Gondor, the northern and southern kingdoms repaired and made whole again. But as the prophecy foretold, the less hopeful choice would lead to him changing his name, and his line of kings continuing on. It's the Council of Gondor who denies Arvadui his claim of kingship of Gondor. In 1945, with heavy persuasion from the steward Pelendur, Irnel, a distant relative of Ondaher, and the captain victorious over the Wainriders, is made king of Gondor. Defeated in this claim to kingship of Gondor, Arvadui inherits an already broken and waning kingdom of Arthodyne. In the year 1964, the Witch King and his forces from Angmar move their focus to the last remaining sub-realm of Arnor and heavily press Arthodyne. It's in 1974 that he sets his sights on Fornost, the capital city of Arthodyne, and the last bastion of hope for Arnor as a kingdom realm. This is where our tale will focus, in the last fight against all hope to defend the remnant of the Northern Kingdom. This first tale, told over the course of two episodes, episodes two and three, will follow a pretty formulaic war, keep defense, last stand narrative. That aspect won't be revolutionary or groundbreaking in itself, where these episodes will really become memorable and we believe enjoyable for all fans of Middle-earth is in the focus on characters and the relationships between them that we will see. I'm going to keep the outline for these episodes somewhat brief for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if we're ever to become a series, it would kind of suck to have an overly detailed spoiler out there already. Secondly, there's a lot of different directions and maybe it's more there's a lot of different subtleties to hash out that we just haven't completely decided on. Either way you look at it, this will be a general overview. Here's the characters we'll really get to know. Ban and his Bywater Battalion, the Stone Throwers, as the forces of Angmar belittlingly refer to them, Ban and his relationship with King Arvadui, the Witch King and his forces, men, orcs, monsters, as well as a potential traitor in the midst of Arthodyne's forces, perhaps even in the ear of the pressed king himself. We'll also get a good deal in terms of the importance of the Northern Kingdom, why the Witch King decided to target it in the first place, the defense of the Palantir from Amansul, as well as other rights to the heir of Isildur, the scepter of Anuminas for one, and some great flashbacks to the Shire and Ban's life at home. 
The importance of developing the relationship between King Arvadui and Ban is paramount. What we hope to achieve here is an ancient seed of kinship between the Dúnedain, the Rangers of the North, and Halflings, a friendship we all remember from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Strider seeking out and leading the Four Hobbits, and even before, the Rangers that are set to guard the Shire by order of Gandalf himself. How cool would it be to see an ancient glimpse of that trust and relationship that would only complement and inform the trilogy we love so much? King Arvadui will also be hard-pressed to find a friend. At this time, defeat is eminent, so it's not like he's particularly popular amongst his own men and warriors. Though fighting is the only option in their mind, it's his name that bears a curse. And as with all of us, when our perceived demise is near, rationality doesn't typically find its way to the forefront. We'll see his men blaming him for their current conditions, probably not directly to him, but Arvadui will sense this. He'll feel the tension and know why. He also has no help from afar. Just a year before the fall of Fornost, Arvadui sent a request for aid to King Ernel II of Gondor, only to receive none. Where was Gondor? Seems to be a question relevant for hundreds, if not thousands of years. We want to really feel for King Arvadui, who, according to Tolkien's Legendarium, really was a good man. Just ill-set in his fate, it seems. But Ban will be there, a source of inspiration and hope appealing to the ranger side of Arvadui and that part of him that still longs for simplicity, a cloak, a pack, and the wild. As we all know, hobbits are the best at filling that desire for simplicity within us all. We'll get some truly delightful scenes, including ones that we think fans will find particularly heartwarming. Before Ban leaves his throne room, what's left of it anyway, King Arvadui will inquire about the hobbit archer's provisions, clothing, etc. Ban reassures they are most hardy folk and have want of nothing. In a final plea, Arvadui will offer the hobbits boots to help fight the bitter cold, partly from the winter, partly enchantment from the Witch King. No boots for us, Lord. That way, there'll be no doubt when they find us on the field of battle. Hobbits, no mistake. Another exciting aspect of this tale is just that, a brand new environment to explore and experience in Middle-earth, the bitter cold of the north. Snow, ice, and the bitterness of the region will be the perfect symbol of the state of the northern kingdom, shattered cut off, slowly dying. Part of this will be natural, but as mentioned before, partly will be due to the sorcery of the Witch King, which brings us to our next point. See what we did there? The Lord of the Nazgul. It's stated in Tolkien's works that the Witch King fled to the north and set up his kingdom in Angmar, headquartered in Karn Doom, for the sole purpose to break the already fractured kingdom of Arnor. He saw it as weak and susceptible to fall if the right methods were used. As he built his army and forces, most who pledged their service to him, men, orcs, and other creatures inclined to evil, were unaware of his true identity, and even his close affiliation and service to, then somewhat forgotten, Sauron. I find this absolutely fascinating, and yet another nod to Tolkien's recurring theme that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, as this point would also apply to the men of the North, not recognizing him for who he truly was, at least not until it was too late. He used planted men, spies, and disruptors to break much of Cardolan and Rudar, leaving warfare a much easier cleanup mission as such. His method of deception is something we also associate with Sauron, which would be a fun thing to explore, perhaps in flashbacks within these episodes, but I feel it will work even better to witness it in real time. More on that in a minute. One of the most interesting ideas to play with in regards to the Witch King, the fallen Numenorean sorcerer king who took one of the Nine Rings all those centuries ago, is how he will physically appear in this tale. Wraiths are a somewhat fun concept to play pretend with, in the broader historical fantastical lore, wraiths can possess physical bodies, much akin to demonic possession, 
This is one way you could take the Witch King's physical appearance, who we see isn't really even him physically, just his soul within the body of a mortal man. In fact, the Witch King utilizes this tactic himself in the defeat of the Northern Kingdom, summoning Barrow Whites to inhabit the tombs of Turn Gorthod just ahead of his final assault on Arthodyne, where and when our episode takes place. Another route could be seeing the Witch King take on the countenance of a wizard likeness, and while I know a starry purist would find this vile, it would fit within the boundaries of his backstory and history, and it's believed that the Witch King was a king of sorcery. I mean, his moniker quite literally spells this one out. It would also be jarring to see a character we loathe so much looking not dissimilar to one we adore so deeply, Gandalf. Clearly marking him, however, would have to be a black cloak and hood a visual cue for us audience members, as well as a nice foreshadowing to his future appearance. A third look we could envision or explore could be that of a rather undead, zombie-like nature. This would easily be the most grotesque of those explored already, but we could definitely imagine a Night King vibe, perhaps even a more physically present King of the Dead appearance, his black cloak and hood providing more a practical sense, covering his hideousness from those he would seek to woo and deceive. However it is decided for him to appear, his character will lose none of its trademarks. Utterly vile, fully committed to his lord Sauron and his evil ways, albeit a little more cunning and less full-on warrior mode than we're used to. We are seeing him attempting to fracture and break, to allow for the return of his lord and the reunion of the Nazgul. Really, we feel however he looks, it's a win. And he will provide an overbearing sense that his forces of darkness are about to do just that. Win. And, returning to the aforementioned deception, to illustrate one of the Witch King's primary tactics of this age and his war in the north, we feel it would add an extra level of depth to witness a traitor, an advisor close to King Arvadui, who is secretly working for Angmar and the Witch King. It wouldn't need to be his closest advisor. In fact, it would probably work best if it was someone a little further down the rung, but someone privy to the strategies in the mind of the king, so to speak. We'll call this character Atani which isn't actually a name or meant to be a final decision, but a placeholder. Atani is merely another translation for Adine, but it sounds cool and it can work for now. Atani will work for our narrative in a couple of ways. We'll get to be a fly on the wall in the failing hours of Arvadui's reign, getting to see him in the context of how he would interact with his advisors and generals, especially interesting in a time where defeat is inevitable. Atani will also be our gateway to the Witch King himself. Picture this. So far, in the early minutes of this tale, we have no sign of the enemy. We know they're close, they're might immense, but we don't see them through the snowstorm and wreckage of the battlefield. After a small council on upcoming maneuvers and defense, we see a cloaked figure slipping away, out into the desolation beyond the wall, walking toward enemy lines. Suicide? No. Treachery. Atani has arranged to meet on the field of battle with none other than the commander of the armies of darkness in the north, the Witch King. After an exchange and perhaps a cutaway to a lighter situation, maybe with Ban and the Hobbiteers, we'll be allowed to cut to the north, Atani granting us access, as it were, narratively, to spend time with the enemy and see for ourselves the might of the Witch King. Could we even see Atani found out? banished, thrown into no man's land, taken to amongst the ranks where he's sure he'll find reward for his espionage, only to be murdered by the Witch King in cold blood, put on a pike, and used as a banner in this upcoming battle? Okay, so I stole that last bit from the fate of Celebrimbor, and this show would be in part for kids as well, but man, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Imagine Ban and his comrades' faces to see Atani's lifeless body held aloft in the final onslaught. What a shock! Shock, treachery, darkness. It's easy to feel swept away. But Ban Galpsy and his hobbit archers will ground us. There's nothing for it. See it through, lads.
is a mantra we will hear several times throughout this two-episode arc, and fans of the stories will find these words a comfort. For we know it as Sam's final decision when faced with utter doom after Shelob's lair and the misfortune that finds him there. The choices of Master Samwise, indeed. It's our desire to plant those words in an ancient context, and pairing them with Ban's physical appearance so akin to Sam's, remember Eleanor's inexplicable allure to this portrait, we'll learn the implication that he is Sam's ancient ancestor. There's also a bit of a nerdy clue in his name, but some might find that offensively simple, so we won't utter that here. Pretty cool to think that not only is Sam Gamgee such a badass just on his own merit, but because there's something ancient, a lineage, a spirit, a family, business, as it were, of fighting darkness against all odds. Invented? Yeah. Contrived? Right. But honoring Tolkien's spirit, writing, and world as an avenue to tell more of his actual stories and tales? We hope. In fact, we believe so. In keeping with that aim of not giving too much away while still revealing major points that will occur during this story, here it goes. The Witch King leads a massive assault, Arthodyne is completely broken, Arvadui retreats to the icy bay of Forod to await his fate, and all our hobbit archers die. Yeah, even Ban. And in our final scene, we'll see the snow fall, the fallen bodies of the men of the north, the music will swell, and we'll see hobbit feet, bare and hairy, so that they'll remember, so that they'll know, at no mistake, hobbits fought here. And with that, we're almost halfway through season one. What a ride it's turning out to be. Of Eleanor and being left bag end, episode four. We'll find our way back to our beloved hero and main character with a wide sweeping aerial shot of the Shire. Little hobbits playing war. We'll hear a distant hobbit child's voice call out, Sam! Sam! which will echo in the ear of Eleanor as we find ourselves fixed on a tight of her face, a dreamlike expression. Fastred's voice will pull Eleanor back to the task at hand, moving into Bag End. Do hobbits use boxes when moving? I like to think so. Maybe baskets or simply loading up carts and trotting uphill. However it's done, that's what we'll get into in the beginning of this episode, one that will focus around familial memories, all the while giving us glimpses and teases of our next tale. Plus, who doesn't love a good old-fashioned moving episode? We can all relate to it, and it can definitely evoke memories of excitement, little adventures, and joy. Let's not forget that we're only able to experience this move-in with Eleanor and Fastred because of their triumph in episode one. Successfully producing the deed to Bag End, indeed, proving that it was left for Sam's firstborn, Eleanor. Returning to Bag End, where she was effectively raised and spent her childhood, will be a rather nostalgic experience for Eleanor. Hearing the creak and moan of the round green front door, turning to see the sunrise shower golden light into the entryway, and the view from the front stoop, all will conjure memories. Not that she hadn't been to Bag End recently, but now it was hers, her home. A place she spent her childhood would now shelter her child, becoming his or her home as well. The beginning of this episode will be full of beautiful shots, Eleanor running her hand along the walls, seeing the old measuring door frame where her and her siblings' heights were recorded annually. It would be really cool to imagine flashbacks of little Eleanorelle, quick cutaways that allow us to see her very memories seamlessly. While unpacking and reminiscing, we'll learn from Eleanor and Faster that a timely settling in is the goal. Not only is the birth of their first quickly approaching, and Eleanor is very close to full term, but Mid-Year's Day is upon them, the chief holiday of the summer days on the Shire calendar, and as a part of the celebrations, all the Gamgee children will be getting together, returning and reuniting at Bag End. A party of special magnificence will be had that will make the unexpected party with the dwarves from The Hobbit look like a polite tea party 
but more on that later. During the first quarter of the episode, we'll see Eleanor and Fastred in different parts of Bag End, only to cut away to the construction of Bag End itself. In various stages and different rooms, we'll see hobbits hard at work and a young, up-and-coming halfling, sometimes milling over blueprints, sometimes watching progress, sometimes helping by digging in with his own hands and feet or shovel. The identity of this hobbit will be unknown for now, but we'll be teasing the tale we'll explore in our next two episodes. I envision one of these centering around the roots in the main hallway, the ones from the tree over the hill that have been incorporated to the interior of the hall itself. Perhaps we'll see the decision to build around this tree. We'll catch glimpses of a beautiful hobbit lady, as well as an impressive stately elder hobbit, all of whom we will get to examine, explore, and get to know in episodes 5 and 6. As Bag End is slowly filled with the humble belongings of our beloved young couple, the morning of Mid-Year's Day will come at last. And a beautiful day it'll be. Sunny, balmy, flowering, and alive. The interior of Bag End may have some bare spaces as far as furniture and belongings go. We do want them to feel like a younger couple after all. We can all remember what our apartments and homes looked like when we were first starting off. There will be no shortage of flowers. Eleanor being, after all, the finest florist in all of the Four Farthings, in addition to being hired to fill the party field and the Green Dragon with her floral creations, she used all of her extra bouquets and even failed attempts to fill the halls of Bag End. Can you imagine how intoxicating it would smell? As dawn breaks, the party's ready to pop off. This will be a really fun episode. For the final three quarters, we'll just get to enjoy hobbits and hobbit life. We'll get scenes in the party field full of hobbits from all over Hobbiton, maybe even as far as Mickledelving, taking in the sights of Summer's Peak, the sounds of life bustling about, undoubtedly some toques leading a band of live music, and see some good old-fashioned eating, drinking, and smoking. The gossip will flow like south-farthing ale and vent as well. Did you hear what Miss Gardner and her mister did to old Marehob? Sent him right through the floor of his office. Made him look like old flower dumpling itself. Sure as a homecoming. We'll hear all sorts of tales and yarns. And we'll get to meet all of Sam's kids. All 14 of them. Eleanor we know, but don't forget Frodo, Rose, Mary, Pippin, Goldilocks, Faramir, Hamfast, Daisy, Primrose, Bilbo, Ruby, Robin, and Tom. There's a lot of kids. Good gracious, they had been productive, hadn't they? It doesn't take much time to question the logistics of this aspect of a story a bit. You're telling me that Eleanor is young enough that she's having her first child at 33, and all her other siblings are on their own? Their mother Rose dead, and their Sam dad gone to Valinor? Right. In fact, looking at a family tree that Tolkien created, let's not forget that hobbits have an obsession with genealogy and familial trees, and you'll easily see that there's 21 years difference between first and lastborn. Eleanor and Tom. Furthermore, Tom was 40 when Rosie dies, which would put Eleanor in her 60s if we followed the canonical timeline. So regrettably, admittingly, because timelines are so important in stories and are so often fudged or rewritten in adaptations, we will be doing the same, but hopefully in a respectable way for fans, and not at all in a way that would take away from the story. If Eleanor is on the verge of giving birth to her firstborn, Elfstan, she is 33 at the time of our mid-year's party. That would make Tom 12, So, definitely young to be without both of his parents, and one would be justified to ask, what the hell is wrong with Sam? Leaving for Valinor when his youngest son barely has hair on his toes? I can only justify and try to rectify this time adjustment by putting Tom and Bilbo and Ruby and Robin, for that matter, with one of Sam and Rosie's older kids. Let's say Frodo and his wife. That would actually be fitting, honestly. 
As Eleanor's siblings won't make too many appearances in this three-season series, my hope is that it will be believable enough and not detracting from the story. Their ages and this timeline is also something that won't be addressed within the context of the show's narrative at all, but I only wanted to speak to it here because it's a conscious decision that's been made, and I know, for I know the spectrum of Tolkien fans well, it will ruffle the feathers of some and downright annoy others. But I can't see a way around it and feel it's an adjustment that won't pull us out of the story and narrative. The important narrative experience we want to have from being with the Gamgee kids on this party day is their closeness, not merely in age. I mean, 14 kids in 21 years is like almost one a year, but in the depth of their friendships as well. We will definitely get some scenes of squabbling and tension. Maybe Frodo harbors some resentment that Bag End was left to Eleanor and not to him being the eldest boy and Frodo's namesake for lore's sake, Sticklebats. But the overall tone from the celebratory dinner will be joyous and revel in the bond these siblings share, forged in love and companionship. We'll let your imagination run wild with the details for now. It's honestly much more fun to imagine all that could and will transpire than being told by me here. But this is an episode where we'll really be able to soak in the Hobbit culture. The night will end with the mass of siblings all gathered around four or five tables hodgepodge together in the parlor, fire roaring, candles lit, glasses full, then empty, the kitchen piled high with food. We'll see laughter and glasses raised, hugs and warm embraces, drinking to their parents' past and their venture into the future. Fireworks from the party field below will cast beautiful flashes of blue and green and gold onto the walls of Bag End. We'll notice Eleanor flinch and grab her belly. Fastred rushed to her side as the chair flies back and her glass falls and will cut to black. Heavy breathing accompanied by Eleanor's voice. Fastred, it's time. Seriously? You want to end the episode with a labor cliffhanger? You're darn right I do. It'll be beautiful. And after all, this season is all about beginnings. The beginnings of Eleanor's familial unit, the beginnings of the Shire itself and halflings before it, and the beginnings of Bag End, which we'll get to see in full in our next two episodes. Of Bag End and The Bag Ends, Episodes 5 and 6. Before doing any real digging and research, I always thought Bag End was old. Like, really old. Like one of the oldest abodes in the whole Shire. So stately and large, a palace of the Shire. Its sheer narrative weight and importance, accompanied with Bilbo's cryptic line from the films, There's always been a Bag End living here under the hill in Bag End. And there always will be. Doesn't that just conjure up ideas of generations beyond count having resided in it? Yeah. Well, turns out what Bilbo actually meant by that was, yeah, my parents built it. I lived here and so did Frodo. And then no more Bagginses. At first blush, it kind of loses the luster of the landmark status. But I found that its poignancy lies more in why it was built than when it was built, or even how long it had existed. The reason Bag End was constructed is arguably much more interesting, moving, and exciting. And we'll get its full origin story here. More beginnings. Man, we're really holding on to that theme, aren't we? As well as the love story of the two who built it. That's right. As teased last episode with the cutaway flashbacks to the construction of Bag End, as Eleanor and Fastred walk its halls, our second tale for season one will focus in on two characters, Belladonna Took and Bungo Baggins, and the love and smeal they built. To say right off the bat, Tolkien didn't document too much about either Belladonna nor Bungo which may seem kind of odd because they're the parents of one of, if not the most important character he ever created. But what we do know we'll use in this story. For instance, there can be certain comparisons drawn between Belladonna and Tolkien's own mother, eldest of three daughters, prominent father. Likewise, we learn that, turns out, Bilbo is a lot like his dad, Bungo. 
like a lot. So much so that Tolkien wrote that in looks and behavior, Bilbo seemed like a second edition of his solid and comfortable father. We also know that a lot of the sayings we hear Bilbo speak came from his father, like third time pays for all and where there's life, there's hope. So though sparse, there is pretty sufficient character stuff here from Tolkien to build these ultra-important hobbits into a two-episode arc frame. However, we'll be leaning on another of Tolkien's gifts to build them as characters. Where sturdy references don't exist, we'll be using Tolkien's oft-articulated characteristics of the Tooks and the Bagginses. One need only to read The Hobbit to understand how we'll center and ground both Belladonna and Bungo. Anytime Bilbo longed for his armchair or his garden, the comforts of home, anytime he thought of being respectable or associating adventures as nasty things that make you late for supper, it was the Baggins in him. That's Bungo. He will be a respectable hobbit, seeking mostly to become more respectable, more settled, more sturdy, to use Tolkien's words, more comfortable. He'll care about his clothes and appearance. He'll hope to build more for his family than he himself had growing up. He's looking to build establishment and to be a hobbit worthy of remark, quintessentially English, so to speak. As I've mentioned briefly before, when building the concepts for these episodes here, it's not our intention to build them fully, but to provide a compelling outline that would hopefully warrant or demand further development until a script could be fully written and an actual series created. So we won't get into specifics too deeply with this story arc, but in building what we will share, if we ever veer too far in any certain direction, it's the idea of Baggins and Took that will ground us again in who Bungo and Belladonna are, what decisions they might make, when they might decide to use humor, how their relationship will unfold. Okay, quit being verbose, Lane. Back to Bilbo. To the converse, anytime Bilbo threw a shrewd comment to a Sackville Baggins, anytime he decided to follow a wizard and 13 dwarfs on a quest that demanded a contract containing a death clause without the thought of grabbing so much as his handkerchief, it was the toque in him. That call to the outside world, to wonder of elves, to marvel of wizards in his youth, to sit and stare at maps, wondering what lay beyond their borders, not merely in wonder, but with a desire to witness it firsthand. That was the toque in him. That's Belladonna. She will be a free spirit, a wild beauty, from a family of import and largesse, but not concerned with possessions or even appearances. Being seen as a respectable hobbit won't be as big a deal to her as her darling Bungo. These two are perfect, not only for one another, but for love storytelling, opposites who attract and elevate and open the other's eyes to a whole new world, or at least way of viewing the world. Okay, so as promised, this will be a vague but hopefully compelling summary of the arc we'll achieve in these two episodes. We'll open with a chance meeting between two hobbits, our Belladonna and Bungo, of course. Maybe at the Green Dragon, maybe a different pub in the Shire, maybe a chance run-in at the market. Wherever it happens, we'll see chemistry and playful and young love. It's going to be beautiful. Is it just me, or has this become extremely rare in media nowadays? As a kid, I remember it being almost overused, a trope, and maybe that's why we see so little of it today, but when we do, it seems to really stand out. It'll be pure and lovely, akin to our scenes with Eleanor and Fastred, loving and kind, they'll be absolutely smitten. Through the course of conversation, they'll share the families from whom they come, and Bungo will realize he's essentially been flirting with a princess. This is something that he'll find particularly intoxicating. As we said, a character trait of his is ladder climbing, to put it bluntly. Not in a negative way, but he's just a hobbit who wants to improve in his station society. Now, this could definitely take a negative turn, and I don't know exactly what Tolkien imagined, but I believe he'd approve of this combination developing simply as a desire of Bungo's to try to impress Belladonna. I don't want Bungo to seem like 
well, a gold digger, for a lack of better term. I think the positive and admirable side of both his desires and her status would be just that, wanting to impress her. Well, part of the journey he'll take will be in realizing that Belladonna is not so easily impressed, leastwise not with material things, and that what she really loves is Bungo himself, the funny, quick-witted, often bumbling hobbit. In this interaction, she'll see his trademarked hospitality in full. Being a gentleman, she'll be taken by his chivalry. He will also woo her a bit with his humor, mostly intentional, sometimes less so, and she'll find him a joy. It's the wild nature of Belladonna that Bungo will be taken with. She won't be exactly what he'd expected, especially after learning her last name and who her father is, the old Tuke himself, the Thane of the Shire. Maybe they'll leave the pub where they meet, run wildly off into the night to look at the stars on some far knoll. Bungo will talk about how often he's wondered about elves, whether they really exist or not. Belladonna reassures him, for she's seen them herself, wandering the forests of Tuckborough. Her father has passed down stories from his friend Gandalf the wizard. Oh, wizards. Now they're a dangerous lot, I reckon. No, I'd be all right with meeting an elf, but not a wizard. No, thank you. I, that's only because you know not of what you'd be missing. Magical doesn't even begin to hit the mark. You love these stars, don't you? Aye, I do. They're beautiful. Bungo tries to avert his eyes at speaking the word, when he really intends them for Belladonna, and less the stars. Well, that's what I thought. The elves might have starlight in their eyes, but wizards have star fire in their hands and hearts. It's a marvel at no mistake, Mr. Bungo Baggins, don't you forget it. You can imagine how fun this will be. So they meet, playfully banter, learn each other's last names, run off to watch the stars, and let their guard down quite a bit. What we'll see next is a fast and fervent love story. Bungo, who's typically unflappable, is unable to focus on his daily obligations. He finds himself daydreaming when he should be conducting family business, longing for his next meeting with Belladonna. Belladonna, who usually is looking far afield and concerned with how to get more of the wide world, finds her focus locked on one hobbit in particular, Bungo Baggins. When given the chance to venture off or plan a mundane task that may allow her to run into Bungo, she chooses the latter. What we'll get next is an invitation to dinner, at none other than the great smales of Tuckborough, for a family meal with Belladonna, her mother and father, old Tuke himself, and her eleven siblings. You thought our Gamgee dinner last episode was something to behold? This definitely won't disappoint as a volley. In fact, Gerontius, old Tuke, held the record for most offspring of any hobbit, twelve, until old Samwise Gamgee and his beloved wife Rosie dethroned him of that title with their fourteen gardener children, which is a cool little nugget for fans to revel in. Okay, so Bungo will definitely fuss over his outfit as he scours his wardrobe for his finest and most impressive ensemble. We're going to get our boy dressed to the nines, and he's nervous because it's not just his outfit he's bringing to the dinner. Upon his arrival at the Great Smeals, Bungo, and I dare say we as well, will be in awe of the structure itself. The Great Smeals was essentially a mansion of tunnels and excavations, countless doors and windows, dug into the escarpment at the foot of the green hills above the rest of Tuckborough, the largest settlement in the Shire. To put into context their grandeur, it's surmised that Isengrim II, the 22nd Thane and 10th Thane of the Tukline, who began the excavations of the Great Smeals, spent too much time in the company of dwarves, for his plans may have been inflamed by an ambition that is far beyond what is acceptable of a respectable hobbit. So yeah, in terms of a place to call home, it's, no pun intended, a big deal. When we enter into the quarters of the old Tuke, we'll see Bungo greeted as family already. And what Bungo experiences is not exactly what he'd anticipated from a family of such renown and importance. It'll be a picture of controlled chaos. These are Tukes, after all, Lots of Took boys running around, showing Bungo the ins and outs of the Great Smeals. 
Old Took and Madame Took there to greet him, of course, and accept his almost obscenely large bouquet of flowers as a thank you for having him. We'll even see Belladonna's two younger sisters, Donna Mira and Mirabella, fawning over Bungo. Bella, you didn't tell us how cute he is. Lord, look at his waistcoat. Is that velvet? Mmm. But amidst it all, Belladonna will stand out like a shining star, a figure of calm beauty and a beautiful storm of familial bustling. Dinner will be fun. We'll get to see tablefuls of food, speeches given welcoming Bungo to the family as if he was already a member, and more bottles of the old winyard than you can imagine. Perhaps it's here that Bungo has his first taste and develops his love of it. At some point, once dinner's passed into supper, Bungo will ask to speak with Old Tuke privately. Gerontius will take Bungo into his office, which will be much shabbier and ancient-looking than either Bungo or we will have expected. To describe it in a word, dusty. Here, Bungo will ask for Belladonna's hand in marriage, as is custom for hobbits. I seek your blessing, sir, and I swear to you, I'll take care of her, sir. Provide for her. Create a stable life, striving for the grandeur that I've seen here tonight. Sticklebats, boy, don't you be worrying about promising all that. Never mind all that. I am only concerned with one thing. Will you love her? I will, sir, wholeheartedly. Good, because she's a wild thing of beauty, my Bella. You won't find a more complex marvel in all the Shire if you look from now to the end of the age, and I reckon even into the next. Aye, good. I believe you, and you have my blessing, lad. Finally, after all the fuss of dinner and supper has calmed, and the Tooks find their ways to their beds, Bungo gets his first moments with Belladonna. We'll get Bungo going on a bit about how beautiful and what a marvel her home is. Oh, this, tis nothing compared to... Well, just come with me. She leads him to the very top of the Great Smeals, the firelight of Tuckborough below and the sky ablaze with starlight above. We'll get some beautifully romantic dialogue here, and then Bungo will pop the question as a star shoots by in the sky. Wow. Lore, that's some good stuff. So we've got Belladonna and Bungo meeting, falling in love, starting their courtship, meeting her family, and then Bungo proposing. As they plan for their hobbit wedding, we'll see Bungo unveil to Belladonna his plans for their home. A masterfully crafted abode he's been painstakingly laying out ever since laying eyes on the great smales. It could never be as big, he'll remark, but its beauty will shoot for the mark. It's lovely. Belladonna will of course be flattered and honored, but the building of this new home will definitely be the passion of her fiancé. We'll get a bunch of sequences of the actual excavation of what will become known as Bag End, and we'll see Bungo become a little obsessed with its completion and perfection, so much so that Belladonna calls him out on it. While up to a certain point she'll find his particularity humorous and entertaining, even giving him more money when he runs out, and actually thinking it's funny, rather than being a point of contention, she does hit a limit when it's his time with her that he begins withholding. In a quick aside, alongside scenes of the building of the Great Smale of Hobbiton, Bungo's family will have a few conversations with Bungo, somewhat disparaging his quick love for and proposal to Belladonna. They'll bring up nonsense like her not being an appropriate match for Bungo, too lofty a partner, and even Bungo's siblings will point out that she's a wife too far out of his league, that there's no way he'll be able to make her happy, nor give her the type of life she's been used to. This will only fuel Bungo's singularity in making Bag End as grand and palatial as possible, to not only prove his family wrong, but to ensure that Belladonna would never leave him, change her mind, or even worse, live in a loveless marriage. In the dramatic sequence, she'll remind him that it's him she fell in love with, and still loves, not his name, or his wealth, or station. Bungo, having been so focused on the building of Bag End, won't even realize how obsessed he's become, and the words of the old Tuke will come back to him. Never mind that. Will you love her? From here on out, 
Bungo decides to step back and let the excavators do their job. Ironically and quite hilariously, we'll see that his inexperience with manual labor and building and construction, along with his particularity, has actually slowed them down quite a bit. So the completion of Bag End comes pretty swiftly once he does make this decision. It's a bit of a humor bookend to a somewhat tense sequence. I don't know exactly with what events episode 5 will end and episode 6 begin, but you can imagine a split wherever you'd like at this point. And quite honestly, treating the two-episode arc as one story will lead to a more fulfilling story. So for now, I won't even articulate exactly where this will happen. The next event we'll get is the wedding of Belladonna and Bungo, and quite an event it will be. We'll even catch a glimpse of a wizard who gets the invite from the old Took. Yeah, that's right, a Gandalf cameo. Let's get this series made fast. We want Ian! It'll be a night to remember for sure, and it'll be fun to get to really live in a Hobbit wedding. We got a glimpse of this in the films with Rosie and Sam's wedding celebration, but it was so fleeting. Here we'll get to see Bungo and Belladonna rubbing elbows with what will end up being most of the Shire, invited or not. This is the marriage of the Thane's oldest daughter, after all. It's as close to a royal wedding as you can get. Maybe we'll even get to see a dwarf or two in attendance. Gandalf will have invited his own associates and acquaintances as well, no doubt, which will please old Took, I would imagine. A merry gathering it'll be indeed. Tuckborough will be in an uproar, and our screens will be full of stunning landscapes, excellent cinematography, and definitely some cutaways to congratulatory speeches and gossip, to be sure. You know, I heard it was she that proposed to him, if you can believe it. Time will pass, and we'll see Bag End be tended to and refined. A gardener, old Gaffer's Pa perhaps, slowly building the landscaping over years. The interiors gaining chairs and tables and couches, and even a glory box, which Belladonna had years before their being married, but we'd be remiss not to feature it being brought into the hobbit hole during this montage. Before we know it, we'll see Belladonna in the front garden, a round belly peeking out from behind some marigolds and chrysanthemums. Little Bilbo is on his way. Continuing the montage and wrapping up our tale in episode 6, we'll see Belladonna in labor and bag end intercut with Eleanor, back in our main storyline, in labor, continuing our story arc from episode 4. Seeing these two laboring intercut back and forth will be quite a spectacle. We'll end with a shot of Belladonna successfully delivering, you guessed it, a baby boy. I wonder what his name will be. Our second tale of season 1 completed. We turn our eyes to episode 7 and our season finale. Of the first of the Wardens of Westmarch, episode 7, A New Line and the Birth of a Baby Boy. Our season finale will pick up exactly where our last episode left off, but we'll find ourselves in labor with Eleanor. Well, not literally, but we'll find Eleanor in the thick of delivery. On a side note, some might contest that the episodes found in Eleanor's storyline are a bit... normal? They can really be boiled down to securing a home in episode 1, moving in and having a housewarming of sorts in episode 4, and having a baby in episode 7. Simple. Relatable. Normal. That's been done very intentionally. In terms of exploring hobbits on a grand scale, going on adventures and participating in quests, well, to be blunt, we already have that. We have two trilogies that focus on just that. To circle all the way back, this is a series and story primarily focused on the simplicity of hobbit life. To be plopped down into the Shire, breathe it in, walk its well-worn paths, to soak up the ordinary. We want to focus on exactly what Gandalf speaks of to Galadriel in the Hobbit trilogy. I have found that it is a small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. So while some would argue that not enough happens in Eleanor's storyline, it might be too predictable or boring, I would argue that it's the everyday, universal experiences that have the potential to be most powerful. After all, in your life, what's been bigger than finding your dream home? 
feasting with family or loved ones, the birth of your children. If you can make a long list for yourself, you probably aren't that interested in hobbits, and that's okay. Now, all that to say, Gandalf also says you can learn all there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years, they can still surprise you. So, I hope this series is indeed full of pleasant surprises for audiences as well. Back to our finale. This episode will follow a structure of two split groups. Eleanor's siblings, still in the rest of Bag End, awaiting the safe delivery of Eleanor's baby, and Eleanor and Fastred in the bedroom, laboring in delivery. I think it'll be an awesome time to explore the relationships between all of Sam and Rosie's children. We'll get all kinds of reactions and behavior. We'll see on full display which of Eleanor's siblings are high-strung and less patient, pacing the floor in anticipation, needing to distract themselves, as well as which respond to the unexpected with a calm and measured demeanor. It will be really fruitful to focus on Frodo, Eleanor's closest sibling, the eldest boy, and the one who would express some frustration with Eleanor being left back end during the party dinner sequence in episode 4. To build tension, we'll also have had a hobbit doctor and midwife sent for who will be our relay between the two groups. The labor and delivery will be long and probably have a complication that comes up. We'll see the siblings' response to all this as the mid-year's day celebrations dim and quiet and late night turns into dawn of the next day. This episode will also parallel episode one nicely, giving Eleanor and Ted some intimate character-developing scenes. One particular moment I'd like to share will revolve around Eleanor becoming quite emotional at the thought of this baby, never getting to meet or know Mama Rose or Sam Dad. Tears will stream down her cheeks as Fastred comforts her. This child will know them. This child will know them both just as all who know you know them. You carry their fire, their love, their spirit, Eleanor. The Eleanor flower pendant glistening around her neck in the dimly lit master bedroom will remember the importance and power of her name. Eleanor is as fierce as she is stunningly beautiful, and she indeed carries all the best parts of her parents. Eventually we'll get to it, and the baby will be born. Just as for Belladonna, Eleanor and Fastred have a baby boy. We'll see the joyous reunion of Eleanor and her siblings as they go from one celebration into another, from mid-year's day to the birth of a new life. They'll break out more bottles, spill some old winyard, and the front stoop of Bag End will be full of billowing pipes being smoked and greeters to give their congratulations to Eleanor's brothers and sisters as word travels fast in the Shire indeed. What will the boy's name be? While both Eleanor and Fastred had some ideas, they'll abandon them all, having met the child, and we'll see them deciding to wait. Next, we'll get a bit of a flash forward to Eleanor and Ted settling into their life of being new parents. We'll see Ted coming home on a sunny autumn afternoon, picking up posts from the mailbox and coming in to see his beautiful wife and boy. His expression will give away a slight astonishment as he finds an ornate scroll amongst a packet of typical mail, letters, and market flyers. Eleanor, son. He'll place the mail on a side table in the entry, but bring the scroll. Finding Eleanor in the baby's bedroom, we'll see her put a finger to her mouth as the boy is sleeping soundly. Fastard won't be able to help himself as he approaches the crib and reaches down to kiss his son's head and marvel at the new life of their family. Something special in the post for you, my love, his voice whispers as he hands her the scroll, tied with a dark blue ribbon. Eleanor's expression of surprise will quickly turn to one of knowing. As she opens it, we'll see beautiful golden ink inside, the words of congratulation from none other than King Elisar, Queen Arwen, and their son Alderion. Again, providing us with a parallel from episode one as the pendant from Arwen again catches the light and sparkles on camera. From Lord Aragorn and Lady Arwen, look, Eldarion's written a few words as well. Ha, isn't that lovely? Perhaps it's time we plan a journey of our own to Gondor. It'll be you who show your family the sights and sounds this time. 
Yes. Some tea? Uh, yes, please. As Fastred goes to turn towards the kitchen, Eleanor will have a sudden revelation. Ted? Yes, love. I thought of a name. Before we hear, we'll cut away to flashbacks of Sam and Aragorn from her gap year in Gondor, as well as seeing again a quick glimpse of the moment Arwen gave her the pendant of the Eleanor flower. Yes? What? Elfstan. Her eyes are set ablaze, speaking this name. Hmm. Ted will look up, with a grin and a look of agreeance and satisfaction. Elfstan. Yes. I think you're quite right. This moment will definitely be a callback and a slight nod to Bilbo's I thought of an ending for my book. The fact that here we get the thinking of a name for a new beginning is not lost on us, and we hope will please many viewers. As a quick side note, and the reason for Eleanor's name decision, Elfstan translates to Elfstone. This was one of Aragorn's many names and monikers, as he carried with Magreenstone referred to as the Elfstone. The naming of Elfstan accomplishes a few things. It continues the new tradition of elven names within the line of Eleanor, as well as referring to Aragorn, who was one of her Sam dad's closest friends and companions from the Fellowship. Aragorn and Arwen are two people who would have had a big impact on Eleanor's own childhood, and Aragorn is also a link between Eleanor and Arwen, not to mention the fact that, as you'll remember in episode one, it's Lady Arwen who gives Eleanor an elf stone that she wears around her neck for all of her life. So, quite an epic, culminating moment, worthy of the weight we'll try to give it. This episode will wrap up with a final montage. Getting to witness the beginning and growth of Eleanor and Ted's family, set to some majestic music, ideally created by Howard Shore, right? Why not shoot for the stars? There's no budget in Google Docs. We'll see Elf Stan grow, Bag End fill up with more and more belongings, and we'll see the arrival of another child, a baby sister for Elf Stan, Furiel. Remember that name. Time will pass, and the family will grow, and we'll close with a shot that references our very first scene from episode one as the sun sets, the golden light filling the front stoop of Bag End. Eleanor's face is aglow as we cut away to Elfstan and Furiel running out into Hobbiton and the warmth of a summer evening, just as we open season one with the ship of Sam sailing into the setting sun. We'll cut back to Eleanor in a shot that looks almost exactly like our first glimpse of her, but in place of mourning, sadness, and tears at saying farewell to her Sam dad, we find an expression of peace, content, and happiness as we hear Sam's words from the opening scene voiceovered. You're ready. You've been ready for a long time now. At this, we'll cut away to a shot of her arms clutching the red book. Keep it safe. Guard it. Add to it. And with that, and the swelling of some epic music, we'll cut to black, and season one comes to a conclusion. But the story doesn't end there. If you enjoyed this first season, I cannot wait for you to see what we have planned for season two. And season three, for that matter. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button, leave us a comment, and reach out to us at anunexpectedpod at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again in our next video, Season 2 of Concerning Hobbits, The Red Book of Westmarch. Until then, keep your feet on the road, and remember, Eleanor lives. Eleanor lives.